0: Well, good afternoon. You know, I've promised um, promised a podcast on Ganesh, but I also promised a podcast on interdependent or dependent origination. So, starting to not feel so bad about overpromising and underdelivering. But in the meantime, I thought this was probably maybe a little bit more uh, to the uh, average tastes. The wife currently is reading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, uh, with a new preface by the auditor. Uh, but I've also noticed that he's produced other works based on this same work. <clears throat> Today she was reading a section uh, called The True Nature of Space and Time, and he also highlighted that section in his, um, I guess it was supposed to be a con- considered a workbook, a companion book uh, to The Power Now itself um but we were listening to it as a separate work and on that note the true nature of space and time i thought initially i would actually go through like i did on the previous podcast and discuss the buddhist uh, the buddhist the buddhist basics or basis even of what uh, mr tole is talking about So he starts and says, now consider this. If there were nothing but silence, it wouldn't exist for you. You wouldn't know what it is. Only when sound appears, does silence come into being. It's excellent, profound, and a wonderful, wonderful idea. This is actually a multifaceted metaphor. Because, of course, uh, silence... Right, if there were no sound, period, kind of like the metaphor of a tree falls in the forest. But again, it seems that Mr. Tolle may have confused his similes, I think, is the metaphor. Kind of like the tree falling in the forest, the idea is not whether the tree makes a sound. The idea was, if there was no perceiver, would it still make a sound? Right? But again, we've discussed this, koans are not meant to be answered. They're designed as a riddle to tie the awake, uh, I guess the unawakened mind, tie it up uh, and help you see through what we consider the nature of reality uh, to um, the ultimate nature of awareness <clears throat> he goes on and says that uh, similarly, if there were only space without any objects in space, it wouldn't exist for you. Imagine yourself as a point of consciousness floating in, in the vastness of space. He says nothing could be again i' I'm, pa- I'm, I'm skipping through here well actually, here, before we skip down, he said suddenly space wouldn't be vast anymore. if there were no stars, no galaxy, just emptiness. He said suddenly space wouldn't be vast anymore. It would not be there at all. There would be no speed, no movement from here to there. See, that again, I have to discuss that. I mean, he's going to go on and talk about emptiness later. But again, if you're talking, I'm sure he doesn't openly state Buddhist, but he references many uh, quotes. He doesn't declare this to be a Buddhist perspective, but emptiness is a common translation of shunyata. That's the emptiness of inherent emptiness or the interdependent origination or dependent origination of all things. Nothing is uh, of itself and only of itself. Nothing has a life of its own Uh, an independence of the rest of the universe. Even a person, you break them down into their individual components. You have atoms, you have blood, you have water, Uh, calcium when you break down bone, right? Same as with the mind. We tend uh, to apply labels, labels like names uh, to ourself uh, and then imbue it with some life. This is what he's trying to, to uh, explain here, right? But again, he misses the idea of emptiness, even of space. I'm going to go on and explain what he maybe could have explained a little bit better. When you look, when you look up, up at the universe and you don't perceive uh, the amount of empty space within it, you only see the objects of perception or what we consider the objects of perception, not uh, the space between. So he talks about emptiness. He says suddenly space wouldn't be so vast anymore, or would it? Would it? Even as just emptiness, would space no longer be so vast? As I mentioned to the wife, he talks about this uh, magical quality of uh, space. It's uh, awe-inspiring. The infinity of space itself, the depth and stillness that allows all that magnificence, to be. Well, that's not space. I mean, again, we're getting away from space as it references uh, uh, the uh, stars and the universe uh, and galaxies, which is what he was referencing. And we're talking about the universe or space as the space between you and I and all things. Surely, yeah, we can reference it as God, as we discussed in a previous podcast, right? The miracle uh, the magic or just sheerly, sheer, s- simply or surely the, um, the transcendental quality that is life itself and the universe. <clears throat> but he goes on and says, there would be no speed, no movement. Right? At least two points of reference are needed for distance and space to come into being. Well, he's making a big jump here, right? Um, he's making a big assumption that one, if space didn't have stars and planets would it truly be empty? I mean, was modern science telling us that uh, uh, the space between objects in outer space uh, might actually be dark matter or some other material? As I said, if we consider the universe expanding at uh, a regular rate then it's not so empty in our sense of not full. Empty of that inherent existence or what I'd rather point out, and I'll jump ahead, he talks about our perception when we look up at the universe from Earth. He doesn't reference um, that our perception is jaded by the environment. In this case, looking through the atmosphere, looking into space from Earth, we're of course not going to perceive it uh, the same as we would if we were in outer space, we're also not going to see as many stars. That being said, he still talks about looking up, seeing 100 billion galaxies, uh, and in each galaxy billions of stars. Okay, I mean that's a bit of a, you know, a leap there, but let's uh, imagine we look up from the Earth, and we ignore the fact that we're not even perceiving the millions upon millions of stars and galaxies and universes all combined. All these little objects of perception for us in the universe. But what are we actually perceiving? Right? So we're not remaining passionless like the Tao Te Ching taught us so we could observe the subtle. And we're not... Um, Again, as Mr. Tolle says, bringing our awareness back to that fact, thus bringing ourselves back to presence. And we're not using our intent, right, or our insight to see when we, uh, when we fail or at least when we uh, lax in our discernment or our effort. But I'll jump back a little bit. And he talks about nothing Could be without space, yet space is nothing. So once again, I'll say, "Mm, no, nothing could be without the perceiver and the perceived truly. Now, if we're talking space again, the space between objects, we're not talking about something that is actually empty. We're talking about the space between perceived objects, So once again, I'll go back to the universe. When we look up at the universe from Earth, we are distracted, right? By our passions, by the fancy lights. We're distracted and we, we see only some of the perceivable objects. Now, perceivable, as I said, there could be the atmosphere in the way. So we don't see all of the stars. But again, the space... Between those stars, isn't it funny that in our arrogance of ha- never having firsthand experienced it, because no human has, what is the space between objects in outer space? Is it truly empty? Or is it possibly made up of some material that we are unable, unwilling, uh, or yet? Um, unlearned enough to perceive. Right? So he talks about that space and all things are only manifested once perceived. And once again, I do need to argue that just like the Tao taught us, non-being is the birth of heaven and earth. Why? Because it predates all objects. Kind of like the uh, the heart sutra that teaches us that before we were born and before we were jaded deluded into believing this birth and death and rebirth cycle is all there is we uh, we were one with the universe that tathagata garba that's the thatness store, that Buddha nature as it's sometimes called, the Atman, the self, the universal self, the transcendent self, uh, the infinite self, Brahman nature, right? Once again, I go back and I say, just because we don't perceive something, does it make it non-existent? I go back to probably one of my very first um, I used to call them moments of clarity, Uh, moments of satori or moments of samadhi or just clear light, uh, insight or vision, as the Tibetans call, or just simply awareness uh, or an understanding of a truth. I was sitting in a cafeteria in a mall and all the hubbub, the cacophony surrounding me, just having begun reading a new copy of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This new copy contained additional material beyond just what uh, Ivan Wentz had translated, uh, but also looking at uh, the document itself, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or it's the natural liberation in the between states, talking about these important bardos. We've talked about this many times. The six states right? You have your three states in life and your three states in the between. All is important, but none more so than our own state, how we guard it, right? Because all of those states are once again uh, given birth uh, by the mind, but also wholly controlled uh, and, of course, uh, managed by our minds, and he goes on and he talks about once again all the manifest things and what was created, and he says, by God, to accommodate the universe. And he says, space is no thing, so it was never created. Again, I don't know if that's a confusion of maybe the Heart Sutra, for example, just to simplify Buddhism, because again, I said, he doesn't, he doesn't declare this to be Buddhist philosophy. It's his own but I'm just trying to understand it from the, the quotes and the references he makes. So when he says, where did it come from? Was it created by God to accommodate the universe? Of course not. Space is no thing, so it was never created. Well, so let's talk about this. I want to remind us that in many, many traditions, God is simply the word that we use for this majesty that is this universe, this... Um, this uh, sum that's greater than the whole of all the parts that we perceive. So I also take, um, well, I also maybe don't agree, right, that it was never created. But in the Heart Sutra, this is actually something interesting we'll discuss at the end of this very short chapter that I'm making very long. But the discussion is as uh, the Bodhisattva Avilokitesvara was cruising in the deep pranaparamita, that's the heart of wisdom. Again, coursing or cruising in the deep pranaparamita. So he was residing in, abiding in this truth. What is the truth? That awareness to our own source of suffering and the source of liberation allows us almost immediate liberation. But what that takes is the realization that all of the five skandhas are empty. What are they empty of? They're not empty and they don't exist nor were they never created. All the five skandhas that we've been born into, all of the prakti, all of the ephemera, all of the, uh, the objects, the feelings, the space, the time that we deal with on a daily basis, you can't deny their existence. What we're talking about is the same duality of the self is their same duality that we use discernment to understand what is correct and what is incorrect, right? So this universe, this uh, cacophony that surrounds us, um, as I said, sitting in the uh, cafeteria, I look around and I see all these other individuals uh, talking and leading their life, but do they continue to exist when I leave? Now, that's a wholly arrogant thought to have, but as I've come to realize in my old age, it is certainly not um, laughable when it comes to the idea of shunyata, right? The idea of emptiness. Our perceptions are empty of any intrinsic reality. So, when I get up and leave the cafeteria and I bring my awareness away from their existence, they no longer exist in my perceptions. Therefore, for me, wholly, of course, they don't exist. Right? But as the Heart Sutra says, as the Bodhisattva Avilo Kichestra is cruising in the deep Prana Paramita, Uh, and he saw that all five skandhas were free uh, of inherent existence or that dependent origination, thus empty. All ills and suffering never came into existence. They were never born, right? So there's that confusion, right? So space is no thing, as he says. So was it ever created, goes on and says, Go out on a clear night, look up at the sky, the thousands of stars you can see with the naked eye are no more than an infinitesimal fraction of what is really there. And he says, as I said, a hundred billion galaxies. You know, he says he's galaxy and island universe with billions of stars. Yet what's more awe-inspiring is the infinity of space itself, the depth and stillness that allows all that magnificence to be. Now that's once again, when I go back to and say this, this uh, spirit, not unlike when I say um, I would worship the Lord of compassion. I'm worshiping um, that universal uh, boundless energy of compassion. I'm not worshiping an individual. So the same here, right? What is more awe-inspiring than the depth and the stillness that allows all this magnificence to be. Of course, absolutely. Nothing could be more awe-inspiring and majestic than the inconceivable vastness and stillness of space. And yet, what is it? Emptiness, vast emptiness. Well, nothing could be more awe-inspiring and majestic than the inconceivable vastness and stillness of space. I argue it's that ability we have, discernment, to see the difference between when we're swept up and swept away by that vastness versus perceiving it for what it is. So once again, I would argue he may have missed an excellent opportunity to explain how you can use uh, this as an example of what we're talking about. When you look up in spite of not perceiving the many, many thousand times more stars and galaxies rather than looking up and seeing every single star in the universe and then just falling in awe at this vastness of all these stars in these universe, Rather than looking up and seeing the emptiness between those stars and actually... The awe-inspiring fact that that is truly awareness, right? If you look up and Mr. Tole says, well, you're only seeing a fraction of the stars and yet you still are in awe at this vast, vast, infinite space, right? So we're still absolutely inspired by something that just seems beyond comprehension and yet It's even further than that, beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet, once again, he missed that opportunity to explain, yet you see all them stars and you perceive the universe is so vast and so infinitesimal, and it makes you feel so small, yet we're all missing. There's far more emptiness in space, but it's not nothing, because it's space between the objects. We've given it a name, even if there isn't that dark matter between, as he says, by the nature of strictly giving it a name, we're interacting with it and giving birth to it. In the Abhidharma, we consider that birth of a citta. Every thought, every emotion, every um, sight, every sound can give birth uh, to a new mind. And again, uh, actually fades away. He says, what appears to us as space in our universe uh, perceived through the mind and the senses is the unmanifested itself. Externalized. It's the body of God and the greatest miracle is this. That stillness and vastness that enables the universe to be is not just out there in space. It is also within you. When you are utterly and totally present, you encounter it as the still inner space of no mind. Within you, it is vast in depth, not in extension. Spatial extension is ultimately a misperception of infinite depth, an attribute of one transcendental reality. Oh, that's a bunch to unpack there, but... So what appears to us is space in our universe, perceived through our mind and our senses, is the unmanifested itself. Externalized. Uh, That makes no sense, but... Okay, whatever. Um, Absolutely. The external that we perceive with our senses um, is actually, in the end, uh, just recreated in the mind, uh, kind of like uh, a telephone game, right? He said he saw she said, right? Um, but I don't get that from his first sentence there, right? Arguably, we do give birth uh, right, to feelings and thoughts and emotions, and he, he actually separates those from what we're talking about here. So he's actually talking about perceived objects and space itself. And so he says, it's the body of God and the greatest miracle is this, that stillness and vastness that enables the universe to be is just not out there, is not just out there in space, it's also within you. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's almost to say he's missing the point here, right? Objects of the universe um, are not born of our mind. Our perception, our volition, um, our consciousness, and how we relate to them, certainly. But to say that all things are mind-created externally, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm misunderstanding what he means by that. Right? right? That stillness and vastness that enables the universe to be is not just out there in space it is also within you right i mean unless he just simply means like i've always said um that duality of the self right that the ego itself is both the reason why we don't see our ability to liberate uh, ourselves from suffering and at the same time it is uh, the main tool that we would use for liberation So, when he he says, when you are utterly and totally present, you encounter it as the still inner space of no mind. Right? So, pretty sure that's what he's trying to say. He's equating um, this focus, the training of the mind, and um, becoming the charioteer uh, and that experience of possibly feeling no mindedness, which it seems. At least to me, uh, surely, practitioner, uh, but I don't know if I would say that uh, no mind is possible, right? Nothing is permanent, surely. Um, the, The idea flows from, what's the term they use? No outflows, right? So... It's when you get to your upper stage of jhana development, mind training, you eventually produce no outflows, meaning nothing is born, right? You are ultimate watcher. You sit, you experience no thoughts, no passions, nothing in you or of you is created beyond the experiencer. Uh, And he goes on and says, within you... It is vast in depth, not an extension. It's vast in depth and not an extension. Yeah, okay, fine. I mean, you're not your external self. You're not your body. Um, you are vast internally because, you know, you begin to plumb these depths. You do see that. Okay, sure. But it was a little opaque, I'll tell you. And he finishes this paragraph with, Spatial extension is ultimately a misperception of intimate infinite depth. An attribute of the one transcendental reality, I mean absolutely what I said initially um, twofold one like uh, the the human mind uh, does not like chaos, entropy. the human mind looks for uh, order in chaos, so I mean it makes perfect sense right that um, right when looking at infinity, the human mind will uh, apply arbitrarily or not some sort of spatial uh, dimension. And he says, uh, an attribute of the one transcendental reality. All okay, right, so what's the, the attribute? All right, special, spatial extension is ultimately a misperception of infinite depth. An attrib- attribute of the one transcendental reality. So the way I quoted this is imagine a steel worker. He's... You know, he's uh, 20, 30 stories up. He's walking on a steel beam. So where should he apply his, uh, his perception, right? Now, he could apply his perception to all of his fields, but would he not find it near impossible to stay focused on walking the beam? So if he were to focus his attention on the beam itself, so that obviously doesn't fall and he can complete his main task of walking on this beam... Has he really turned his back from proper awareness? Or has he simply used discernment to direct his awareness where it ought to be? So, I'll go on. And the reason why I mention this, because uh, he, he quotes uh, a question, I believe. Someone says, According to Einstein, space and time are not separate. I don't really understand it, but I think he's saying that time is the fourth dimension of space he calls it the space-time continuum well that's a little more difficult than i'm sure he's ready to go into he's shown himself not to be a scientist per se but if you look at einstein again i'm not a scientist so just go look it up yourself but if you look at uh, um uh, albert einstein his theories had more to do that they are uh tied but relative right So his, just to oversimplify, I hate to do it, but as you speed up in space, time slows. So they're not as directly tied as we might perceive. So he's using this to give you an idea that space and time is relative, like a watch pot uh, never boils, or when you're used to living in a small apartment and you move to a large house, of course, everything seems larger. Same perception in reverse if you move into a smaller dwelling. Uh, it's perception alone. But the book goes on and says yes, what you perceive externally as space and time are ultimately illusory, but they contain a core truth. Absolutely, as I said, our senses are doing their utmost best to give us the best representation of what they're experiencing because we can't experience it, our minds cannot experience it firsthand. Um, whether our ego is in play or not. Now add in the ego and so there becomes uh, an almost guaranteed misperception. He goes on. He says they are the two essential attributes of God, infinity and eternity. Perceived as if they had an eternal existence outside you. Within you, both space and time, have an inner equivalent that reveals their true nature, as well as your own. Whereas space is the still, infinitely deep realm of no mind. The inner equivalent of time is presence, awareness of the eternal, now. Right? I change that up just because I find it hard to say the eternal now. So remember, he says, remember that there is no distinction between them. All right? Again, it just doesn't seem to make sense, but if you were to just break it down, and it's that discernment, that understanding that we deal with time and space. Yes, it's relative because of our limited perceptions. Your uh, mandate is to navigate this and not allow it uh, to distract you, Right? Uh, mislead you, um, in, you know, inflame your passions uh, so that you can't complete your task. Right? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to move on from that line. But he says, Remember that there is no distinction between them. When space and time are realized within, as the unmanifested, no mind and presence, external space and time continue to exist for you, but they become much less important. The world, too, continues to exist for you. But it will not bind you anymore. I mean, I can see why people read it, because if you have a a cursory understanding, you can pull from this what he's talking about. But he says, space is still, infinitely deep realm of no mind. So he's equating space as no-mindedness, nothing. And he says, um, the inner equivalent of time is presence. Awareness of the eternal now. That eternal now is simply um, something that we aim for. Like in the Heart Sutra, it's that um, parasam gate. It's to go to the other shore, to reside, to abide in this awareness or this mindfulness, the satipatthana. Um, He says, when space... And time are realized within as the unmanifested. Again, he's referring to um, our external um, reality is, uh, of course, experienced internally. So, of course, to uh, change your universe, you must manage your inside. He says, no mind in presence. That's how we perceive space and time. External space and time continue to exist for you but they become much less important now didn't he say that time is not created, and yet now he 's saying it does exist for us um, and it continues on there's no mention of time being tied to space, so if we 're not occupying that space and it's not created unless um, unless we create it uh, within our own minds right unmanifested then then how can it be? Right how can it continue to exist, but neither here nor there, um, they become much less important. okay, I'll give them that. I mean, I actually complained about it when we read it originally, but so he says the world too continues to exist for you, but it will not bind you anymore. Oh, I don't know why they strip out so much sufficiency. Yes, when you're no longer swayed by the cacophony of samsara. When you're no longer, you know, um, lustful at the sight of uh, the faintest amount of skin. When you're no longer enraged by the, the slightest uh, hint of uh, injustice. When you're no longer moved by heaven or earth, none too much, but none too little, right? That golden mean not insufficiency and not excess. That's when you do achieve this liberation. But right, he equates the living in the world to be um, free from its bounds. And in the Buddhist uh, perspective, that is uh, absolutely impossible uh, because it is this birth and death cycle, the samsaric realm, that is, uh, our suffering. Uh, We have made that choice, surely, within our mind. I like the idea I've discussed before, that it is all manifest of mind, so our perception of samsara, this this world here, is purely of mind, as is the heavens discussed in Buddhism, like Sukhavadi, the heaven for the pure land, uh, Amitabha's heaven where you can pray uh, with devotion uh, to be um, born amongst the, the lotus in uh, the pure land which is Sukhavati right? a land away from the distractions and the delusions of samsara where you can continue your Buddhist studies and hopefully uh find a way to achieve that liberation that, uh, that we should all be seeking. But he goes on and says, hence the ultimate purpose of the world lies not within the world, but in transcendence of the world. Now that I won't argue, but he sure did make it difficult to pull out of that, right? The idea is to transcend the greed, the commodification, right? The certain dress. Uh, you, know, you gotta go out. You gotta go out every Friday. Just as you would not be conscious of space if there were no objects in space, the world is needed for the unmanifested to be realized. You may have heard the Buddhist saying, if there were no illusion, there would be no enlightenment. It is through the world and ultimately through you that the unmanifested knows itself. You are here to enable the divine purpose of the universe to unfold. That is how important you are.